Section 2 of The Lieutenant and Others. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. The Lieutenant and Others by Sapper. The Lieutenant, Chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 and so it came to pass that at six o'clock that evening Gerald Ainsworth, with a few other officers of his battalion, jogged slowly along in a bone-shaking wagon toward Ypres. He was going up early to take over the trenches from the battalion they were relieving, which in turn was going up to the front line. Past the station with its twisted rails and splintered sleepers, past the water tower, almost untouched at that time amid the general devastation, on down the road, and then right-handed into the square. Some blackened half-burned carcasses lying under the ruins of the cloth hall, the first actual trace of war he had seen, held him fascinated. Down a side street a house was burning fiercely, but of life there was none except one military policeman watching for looters. A very young subaltern on the box seat was being entertained by the ASC driver, one of the good old sort. Six officers fresh from home, thirsting for blood. Should they not have it? Every shell hole held a story, and the driver was an artist. You can take it from me, sir, and I knows. This year place weren't no blooming picnic three weeks ago. The major, he says to me, Jones, he says, the ration limbers have gone off and have forgotten the tea. I looks to you to get the tea to them lads in the trenches. Also, there's an allowance of pepper been sent out in a parcel by the League of Beauty in Tooting for our gallant defenders in France. Put that in too. Very good, sir, I says. They shall have their tea and their pepper, or my name's not Alf Jones. With that, sir, I harnesses up the old horses and I gallops. Through here I comes, the old horses going like two-year-olds, and then they was shelling it, no blooming error. As I was going through, the cathedral fell down, and one of the tiles hit me on the napper. But what did I care? Just as I gets here, I meets a party of officers. Three generals and their staff blokes. Says they to me, they says, Stop, for the generals are gassed, and you must take us away. I says to him, I says, And what about the pepper, gentlemen, for the men in the trenches? Pepper, cries a staff officer, and as he spoke we took it, sir, right into the back of the wagon they put a seventeen-inch shell, and the gift from the League of Beauty was all over the square. Sneeze, you should have heard us, the commander-in-chief, he sneezed the gas right out of him, and the Lindsay Lancer, he says to me, he says, Jones, you've saved our lives. Yes, I says, you're welcome to any little thing like that. But what about them poor trusting girls and their pepper? 
It was at this moment, I subsequently gathered, that my subaltern hove in sight carrying two large mirrors under his arm and, finding where they were going, demanded a lift. Very quiet tonight, he remarked when he was stowed inside. I've just been looting mirrors for periscopes. Now I've brought him into the story because he was the first man to tell them that the reserve trenches they were occupying were not all honey and strawberry jam. He's a useless young blighter, and unless he's watched very carefully, he always drinks more than his fair share of port. But in view of the fact that other people will arrive in time and go and sit, if not in those particular trenches, at any rate in trenches like them, I would like to point out that the man on the spot knows what he's talking about. Also that, because for three days on end you do a thing with perfect safety, it does not follow that you won't be killed doing it the fourth. And I would like it to be clearly established that my port-drinking looter of mirrors told the officers in the wagon that the line they were going into was habitually shelled. Remember, everything was quiet. Those who may happen to read these words and who know Ypres will bear me witness as to how quiet it can be, and will agree with me that it can frequently be otherwise. Now they dropped him halfway at a place where there are cellars in which a man may live in safety, and there they disembarked from the wagon and walked, and all was peace. One dead horse, a very dead horse, raised its voice to heaven in mute protest, but otherwise all was perfectly peaceful. Two or three shells passed overhead as they walked down the road, but these were quite obviously harmless. And suddenly one of our own batteries let drive from close by with a deafening bang. Nothing untoward occurred, and yet they were quite near enough to hear individual rifle shots. And so they came to the trenches which they were to occupy, and found them full of a regiment which had been in them for two days and was going up to the front line that night. The right flank rested on a railway line, and the left on no special mark in particular. Away in front of them on the left a dull brownish smudge could be seen on the ground, in a place where the country was open. The German Trenches! Who does not remember the feelings with which he first contemplated the German front trench and realized that there actually reposed the Huns? And, in passing, it's a strange fact, but nevertheless a true one, that quite a number of men have been out to the trenches, survived two or three days, been wounded, and gone home without so much as seeing a Bosch. That night the battalion made their first acquaintance with trenches as a bed. Luckily they were dry as trenches go, though they suffered, in common with all other trenches, from an eruption of small pools of water occurring exactly where you wanted to put your head. And now the time has come for me to justify my subaltern's existence and entry into this story. As I said before, he had warned that party of officers that the trench was not healthy at all times, but his voice was as the voice of the Tishbite, 
or Job, or whoever it was who cried in vain. For the next morning, a beautiful warm morning, the men woke up a bit cramped and stiff, and getting up to stretch themselves found that everything was still quiet and peaceful. And one by one they got out of the trenches and strolled about discussing life in general and breakfast in particular. Also several of the officers did the same. It came without warning, like a bolt from the blue. A screaming sort of whiz, and then bang, 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 all along the line, for the range was known by the Germans to twenty yards. The officer Gerald was talking to gave a funny little throaty cough and collapsed like a pricked bladder. And he lay very still with his eyes staring, a sentence cut short on his lips, with a crimson stream spreading slowly from his head. For a moment, Gerald stood dazed, and then with a gasp fell into the trench, pulling the officer after him. Crump! Crump! came two high-explosive shells, plump on the parapet, burying about ten men in the debris, and for a space the battalion ceased to discuss things in general and breakfast in particular. Four hours later they were still sitting remarkably tight in the trenches. Airings on the ground had ceased to be popular, for behind the trench lay a dozen still forms with covered faces. Suddenly there came a voice from above Gerald, inquiring, to the accompaniment of much unparliamentary language, who was in charge of that bit of trench. Looking up, he encountered the fierce gaze of a staff officer, and with him a crusty-looking sapper-captain. "'I say, look out!' he cried, getting up. "'It's awful up there!' We lost about thirty men this morning. So I see, answered the staff officer. What the deuce were they doing up here? Are you aware that this is under direct observation from the Germans? Some of you fellows seem to think that because things are quiet for five minutes, you can dance pastoral dances in front of your trenches. He grunted dispassionately. The sapper captain took up the ball. What do you propose to do where the parapet has collapsed? He inquired. I really hadn't thought about it, answered Ainsworth, looking at the collapsed trench. I haven't had any orders. Orders! On matters of that sort, you don't receive them, you give them. On the road are hundreds of sandbags, thousands of sandbags, millions of... The staff officer caught his eye. Daily they quarreled over sandbags. At any rate, he went on firmly, there are lots of sandbags. Go and get them. Fill them. Build up the bally trench, and don't leave it like that for the next poor blighters. Work on trenches is never finished. You can go on for days and weeks and months, but the staff officer was leading him away. Years, I tell you, can you work on these damn trenches? And he waits for orders. Peter, you're feverish. The staff officer gently drew him on and they suddenly paused. 
" What ?" he cried, in a voice of concentrated fury, gazing at a trench full of faces upturned to the sky. " What are you looking at ? Turn your faces down, you fat headed dolts. I know it's a German aeroplane. I saw it three minutes ago. And there you sit with a row of white faces gazing up at him, so as to leave him in no doubt that the trenches are occupied. Keep down and don't move, and above all don't show him a great line of white blotches. They're bad enough for us to bear as it is, but, James, you're feverish now. It was the sapper officer's turn to draw him away. But I admit, he remarked sadly as they faded away, that it's all quite dreadful. They learn in time, but, to begin with, they want nurses. And, lest the morning perambulation of these two weary officers may seem inconsistent in any way with their words, I would point out that what two or three may do in perfect safety, a body of men may not. They don't, as a rule, waste shells on an isolated man in khaki, and these particular trenches were out of rifle range. For the time, therefore, we will leave Gerald building up his trench with those twelve silent bodies behind, eloquent testimony that appearances are deceitful and that the man on the spot knows best. Chapter 4 is that the guide? What? You're the general's cook. Well, where the devil is the guide? All right, lead on. The battalion was moving up into the front line trenches after two uneventful days in reserve. Their lesson well learnt, they had kept under cover, and the only diversion had been the sudden appearance out of heaven of an enormous piece of steel which had descended from the skies with great rapidity and an unpleasant zogging sort of noise. The mystery was unearthed from the parapet where it had embedded itself, and completely defeated everyone, till a stray gunner, passing, told them that it was merely part of a German archie shell, which had burst up at a great height and literally fallen like manna from the heavens. Slow in front, for heaven's sake! Agitated mutterings from the rear came bursting up to the front of the column, mingled with crashes and stifled oaths as men fell into shell holes they couldn't see, probably half full of water. Keep still! Duck! An insistent order muttered from every officer as a great green flare shot up into the night and, falling on the ground near them, burnt fiercely and then went out, leaving everything blacker than ever. On their left a working party furiously deepened a communication trench that already resembled a young river. Coming on their right, as they crept and stumbled along in single file, a small party of men loomed out of the night. More agitated mutterings. Who are you? And from a medley of answers, comprising everyone from the Archbishop of Canterbury to the Kaiser, 
The fact emerges that they are the ration party of the regiment on their right. At last a halt. The head of the battalion has reached the trenches and the men begin getting in. Not used to the game, there is a lot of unnecessary delay before the men are settled and the other regiment away. They have left behind two or three officers to introduce the new men to the trenches, explain exactly what places are healthy and what are not, where the ammunition is kept and the bombs and the flares. A sniper with a fixed rifle has the other side of this traverse marked, said one of the officers to Gerald. He's up in a tree somewhere, so don't keep any men on the other side of it. He's killed a lot of ours. Listen to him. And from the other side came a ping thud as the bullet hit the earth. Merely a rifle set on a certain mark during the day and loosed off ten or eleven times every hour during the night, hoping to bag something. They're pretty quiet here at present, he was told, but I don't trust em a yard. They're too quiet. Bavarians. If you want to, there's an officer out in front about fifty yards away with a good helmet on. Thought of going out myself last night, but they were too bally busy with their flares. Still, the helmet's worth getting. Well, so long. I think I've shown you everything. Bye-bye. Oh, while I think of it, they've got a bit of this communication trench, about forty yards down, marked. I'd get it deepened. And with that he went, and Ainsworth was alone, stray rifle shots cracking through the night flares going up with steady persistency. He tested his telephone to headquarters, it was working. He went along his length of trench, one man watching in each little length, the rest lying down with rifles by their sides. Occasionally the watching man gave them one round to show the Hun he wasn't forgotten, while without intermission the ping thud from the fixed rifle came into the earth of the traverse. It formed a sort of lullaby to Gerald. The awakening was drastic. Just as the dawn was faintly streaking the sky, and the men all awake were gripping their rifles in anticipation of any possible attack, the first shells burst along the line. From then on, for what seemed an eternity and was in reality two hours, the shells poured in without cessation. Shrapnel, high explosive, and sometimes a great sausage-shaped fellow, came twisting and hurtling through the air, exploding with a most deafening roar. That was the Minenwerfer, trench howitzer. The fumes from the shells got into their eyes, the parapet collapsed, Traverses broke down, men gasping, twisting, buried, and still they came. Men, those who still lived, lay dazed and helpless. Whole sections of the front of the trench were torn away in great craters. In some places men, their reason almost gone, 
got blindly out of the trench. Their one idea to get away from the ghastly living death. But if death was probable in the trench, it was certain outside. The deadly rain of shrapnel searched them out, and one by one they fell. Some, perhaps, dragged on a space with shattered legs, muttering and moaning till another tearing explosion gave them peace. Keep down! Keep down! Ainsworth tried to shout. His lips, trembling with the fearful nerve-shattering inferno, could hardly frame the words. When they came it was only a whisper, but had he shouted through a megaphone none would have heard. The din was too incredible. And still they came. His eyes were fixed stupidly on a man kneeling down behind a traverse, who was muttering foolishly to himself. He saw his lips moving, he cursed him foolishly, childishly, when, with a roar that seemed to split his whole head open, a high explosive shell burst on the traverse itself. The man who had been muttering fell forward, was hurled forward, and his head stuck out of the earth which had fallen on him. Gerald laughed. It was deuced funny. He started to howl with mirth, when suddenly the head rolled towards him. But he could not stop laughing. At last he pulled himself together. So this was what he had read about so often in the papers at home, was it? A furious bombardment of our trenches. Perhaps, though, he reflected, this was not a furious bombardment. Perhaps this was only a slight artillery activity upon our front. And then he very nearly started laughing again. It was all so frightfully funny. The actual thing was so utterly different. And so far he had not seen a German. Everything had been so completely peaceful. Until that morning and then, without warning, this. Most amazing of all, he was not touched, and as that realization first took hold of him, so his dulled faculties first grasped the fact that the fire was slackening. It was, and, just like a tropical storm, suddenly it seemed to die away. Shells still passed screaming overhead, but those devastating explosions on the trenches, on his trenches, had ceased. Like the sudden cessation of bad toothache, he could hardly believe it at first. His mind, his brain were still dazed. He seemed to be waking from a nightmare, but only half awake. How long he lay there no one will ever know, trying to steady his hand, to still the twitching of his muscles, but suddenly he was recalled to his senses by seeing a figure coming crawling round the shattered traverse. It was his captain. Thank heaven, you've not stopped one, old boy, he said. Good God, you've had it bad here. Gerald nodded. He could not speak. His captain looked at him and so did the sapper officer who came behind and, being men of understanding, for a space there was silence. 
worst bit of the whole line, said the sapper. We must hold it where we can today and get it patched up tonight. How many men have you got left, Gerald, in your platoon? I don't know, he answered, and his voice sounded strange. He looked to see if the others noticed it, but they made no sign. As a matter of fact, his voice was quavering like an old man's. But, as I have said, they were men of understanding. I'll go and see. And so the three crawled on, and in various odd corners they pulled out white-faced men. One in a corner was mad. He was playing a game by himself with another man's boot, a boot that contained its original owner's foot. One man was sobbing quietly, but most of them were just staring dazedly in front of them. Suddenly, Gerald clutched his captain's arm. Evan, sir, he croaked. They can get through here. Not by day, answered the sapper. The ground in front is enfiladed from higher up, and, as a matter of fact, they show no signs of advancing. The bombardment has failed. Failed! Failed! croaked Ainsworth, and he laughed hideously. Rather! I noticed the failure! Nevertheless, old chap, what I say is right. They've failed because they can't advance. He put his hand on Gerald's arm for a moment. They may try to make a small local advance tonight under cover of dark, but I don't think we'll be troubled till then. They won't renew the bombardment, from what I know of them. And with that he was gone. And so Gerald gathered together the remnants of his platoon, and there were fifteen all told. He put them where he could and waited for the night, when, with another working party, the trenches could be built up to their proper shape again. And then he went and sat down again and wondered at life. Overhead the shells still screamed on their way. In the distance the dull boom of their explosion still came reverberating through the air. He was getting fairly skilled now in estimating where they would burst, for a desultory shelling of the trenches was still going on, though not in his section of the line. And it was then that I think the ass period emerged from the chrysalis stage and the man appeared. For as he listened to the rushing noise through the air, saw the great cloud of blackish-white smoke, and later heard the roar of the explosion somewhere down the line, it was borne in on him that there were other things in the world besides nightclubs, that there were other things besides cocktails and whiskey sours and amusing women, and that a new force was at work, the force of death, which made them all seem very petty. The ancestors seemed a bit petty. The money that came from things in tins seemed a bit petty. He only remembered a head rolling towards him with gaping mouth and staring eyes. It struck him that his might have been the head. End of Section 2 Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa